what we thought was the end of the operation, which was about seven months ago, we had either reloaded, relocated inside Afghanistan or moved them out of Afghanistan, about 53,000 people. Helping those in Afghanistan. Jeff Gibson, president of Big Life, joins a podcast to discuss how they've used their underground church to help others avoid conflict from oppressive groups all throughout the world, and most recently in Afghanistan from the Taliban. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender so can we start off in Afghanistan and what what has your work over there been like? We've been working in Afghanistan since about the year 2010. Um, it was uh, just something that the Lord laid on our heart that we should go to that country. We were working in some neighboring countries as well. And at that time, we really saw the need for the gospel in Afghanistan because uh, there were estimates that as far as Christians go inside the country, it could have been as low as, low as 400, maybe as high as 6,000, which is not much. Uh, that's changed uh, for the better in, in the recent years. But we started working there. And, and our model is not that we go and do all the work, but that we try to find indigenous people, so Afghans, who love Jesus and just want to make disciples of their own people. Uh, we found that to be a much more effective strategy over the years. And so we have some leaders inside the country. Obviously, we have to work deeply underground there because of the resistance and, and the extremists who do not like the work that our, our leaders are doing. But uh, we've seen a lot of fruit in that country since 2010. Yeah, that must have been a uh, chaotic last, uh, what, 13 years now, right? Over there, especially in the last couple of years then. It's been extremely difficult work. Uh, it's People have paid with their lives. In fact, uh, in, in that region of the world, we've lost over 90 people in the last eight years oh, that wow. have been murdered for their faith. Um, but when that happens and someone is martyred, it's usually a close friend or a family member who will not let that death go in vain. And they pick up the mantle and continue the work. Uh, if it's a father or a brother or a friend, because they want to see the mission advanced and they're, and they're not going to let the enemy win. Yeah. And what, um, can you tell us a little bit about what your mission is um, over there? Yeah. So our mission anywhere in the world, our mission statement is to empower believers worldwide to reach and disciple their own people for Jesus Christ. And, you know, this is not the way the, the ministry started. We actually started as a sports ministry. And uh, the first country we ever went to was Iran and and taught baseball and used that as a platform to uh, reach people with the gospel. Um, but it wasn't until about 2003 in India where the Lord kind of revealed to us that it was all about us going. It was all about us teaching. And it's hard to learn the language and the culture and, you know, everything that, that happens in a different country. And the Lord kind of showed us if we empower the believers that are already there 
to reach their own people, then they're so much more effective because they know the language, they know the culture, they live there, they don't get homesick. I always joke they like the food a lot better than I do. Yeah, it's an amazing process to see where you guys are going too because the first two countries, Afghanistan and Iran, those are two countries that I think are would would um immediately bring up some thoughts of like wow that's not the i'd say like the safest areas in the world to be doing any work especially religious related work um just because of uh i mean obviously recent events in the last couple of years with governments and religion being implemented in both of those governments being a heavy form of how they practice their everyday lives in those governments and obviously then being a little bit of uh, i'd say intimidated and afraid to say the least at adopting new religions and ideas um and you guys also too you um you help kind of relocate the refugees and the and people that are facing these stigmas and retaliation for practicing their faith in these countries yeah we you know, we weren't really ever thinking about being a rescue operation, but when Afghanistan fell in August of 2021, you know, it was the right thing to do. There was a lot of people, unfortunately, that the U.S. government and others left behind in that country that were very helpful uh, to our cause and, and NATO's cause there. And um, we started to get some of our own people out who were in immediate danger. But we connected with a group called Task Force Pineapple. They're on the news quite often. Uh, ex-Green Berets, ex-military people who had interpreters there, yeah. friends there, and they, uh, we were connected to them through a board member, and we started to talk to them, and they said, look, we, we can get you some intel, but, you know, once the airport gets bombed, and they had some intel that it was going to be bombed, they said, it, it's going to shut down everything, and you have, Big Life has boots on the ground, you actually have indigenous people on the ground, can you help us get them out, and you know, I, I didn't know the answer to that, to be honest with you, Daniel. And we, we called our indigenous leaders on the ground there and said, are you willing to do this? And they said, we are absolutely willing to do this. And uh, it wasn't something in our budget. Uh, it wasn't something that I would say we're trained for. However, a lot of our leaders, a good portion of them used to be extremists that had their life radically changed by Jesus. Oh, so really? they're pretty smart on how to deal uh, with, you know, the government and certain factions around the country. So uh, they had connections that worked. And by the what we thought was the end of the operation, which was about seven months ago, we had either relocated inside Afghanistan or moved them out of Afghanistan about 53,000 people. Wow, 53,000 people you were able to get out of Afghanistan. Well, they didn't all come out, but some of them got relocated into other oh, areas. In, yeah, internally and internally so, and internationally. Yeah, correct. Wow, that is an amazing feature. Fifty three thousand people. And I know to do that when you uh didn't obviously enter the country with that intention when you first started over there. <laughs> no, it was it was never in our wheelhouse. Um, you know, that's why we empower indigenous. But one thing we really learned, um, because when Afghanistan fell. You know, a lot of organizations had to leave. There was NGOs, there was nonprofits, yeah. Western nonprofits, you know, obviously our military left. But what we learned, you know, even though our, pro our, our process and our strategy is indigenous people reaching their own, is when it really got tough there and still is tough there, the indigenous don't run away. They run towards the danger. They are absolutely passionate about their own people. 
knowing the truth of the gospel. So there's nowhere for them to the run, run, and they wouldn't run if there were were places to go. So they ran into the danger. They organized in incredible ways. Uh, we do not run things top down, telling them how to do things because we would mess it up. They know how to do it. We just help empower them to do what the Lord's called them to do. And what, um, if you could give a little insight into like what, uh, how that process was, you know, when you, the Afghans that were, you were able to move, relocate to other countries, were there, are there um, some countries that were a little bit more, I'd say softer and more willing to you, to work with you guys on the relocation and in more, in more of a sustainable way, rather than, uh, I know there's a lot of, a lot of countries that were either open to long-term, a lot of countries that were open to just like short-term, like the UAE had, that was basically like a, supposed to be like a temporary, um, not shelter, but a temporary area before the refugees would then process over to like countries like Canada and the United States. Um, but how overall, how is that process like? Yeah, for security reasons, Daniel, I probably won't say which countries uh, we move them into, but I would say our our experience or our capability to move them beyond neighboring countries really wasn't much more than that. Mm. Um, now there were some military or, or uh, some ex-military people that had special immigration visas. So if we could at least get them across the border somewhere, uh, you know, they had friends in the United States or government officials who could get them further down the line. Um, what mostly we have been able to do is get them out and then we get them connected with humanitarian relief agencies like the UNHCR, get them registered as refugees. And we have we have provided subsistence for some of them, uh, you know, housing and food and medical and stuff like that. But it's amazing how fast those funds can run out. So a lot of them oh, yes. have to quickly figure out how to fend for themselves. And, and they are doing that. Run out so quickly and really like the the point of view from a refugee too is so um like you're you're really just trying to relocate just to get back to a starting point there was um a story i'm not sure if you've ever heard of the guy um the interpreter nazrat ahmad yar he um interpreter for the united states military for 10 years during um the war and he actually fled afghanistan during the takeover and he ends up going to the UAE, like the temporary processing center, and then um, gets eventually him, his four kids and his wife, all luckily enough, get over to the United States, which is a, a rare case to get everybody at the same time, pretty much. Um, and he ends up moving, relocating to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, he ends up getting robbed at gunpoint. Yes, so, I did. Yeah, and he ends up moving down to Washington D.C. And I think he was he moved down to Washington D.C. just because I think he probably had some sort of contacts with contractors or something, but just maybe contacts at best because he started working as a Lyft driver. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, this was literally three weeks ago. He starts working as a Lyft driver and he gets shot to death in D.C. in our nation's capital. He gets shot to death leaving behind his four kids, his wife, and just as importantly, he was sending money back to Afghanistan for his parents and siblings who are literally still there. So the, like, the such a tra tragedy to epic proportions to where it reminds me almost of 
the Chris Kyle story. If you ever seen American Sniper, that was um, directed by I think Clint Eastwood, even yes. where he he's one of the greatest snipers in American history and does all of these amazing things overseas. Almost dies, however many times, the sacrifice on his family to then come home and end up getting killed by his his own his own friendly veteran um, gets shot. You know, I mean, that that story on on Nazrat really reminded me of that. Just such a tragedy. But it, it sets it back to the starting place of like when these people are getting to other countries, like it really is the struggle is just you're in the beginning phases of it, really in the infancy, because Nazrat's story was heart wrenching. I can only imagine how many people have either been in similar situations or I mean, really just on that grinding it out, trying to learn English or whatever country languages they're in while trying to put together an income, um, you know, and, and just make things work when you don't even know how to make things work. So I really, uh, um, it's, it's an astounding experience and it really is, uh, wonderful and amazing to, to know that you guys are really like have, have guided people to give people opportunities to be able to at least get out because people over there, I mean, uh, it's almost like an underground operation over there right like an underground church you'd say oh absolutely um you know if you if you did things out in the open there uh you wouldn't last long um we've had to do everything underground and you know when we say that we don't we don't even have large gatherings of believers over there because you know it'd be too dangerous someone could report you you know the taliban or other forces could come in and and try to see what's going on and Unfortunately, we've learned from some of our mistakes by losing some people, uh, too large a gathering, yeah. uh, maybe inviting someone new that you think is a, a possible seeker seeking truth. And, you know, we have strict guidelines on how many people we allow to gather, where they gather, what they do. Um, in fact, just, uh, you know, years ago, we brought our leaders out and we met in another country just for a couple of days, just, just to get their heart, you know, and, and they don't like to share things too much electronically because it's yeah. too dangerous. And, and Daniel, we were actually singing some worship songs out loud in a hotel room and they started weeping and they said, we can never do this in our country. We can't sing this loud because someone would hear it and we would be in danger. So it just reminds you, you know, the freedom that we have here and what they don't have there. Yeah. That's, really what it comes back to, you know, um, especially because I mean, what you think like you could maybe go into the, the mountains or something like you could do that, but like for how long until somebody notices, like there's a, a large group of people heading out into the, in, into the mountains every Sunday morning or, um, you know, and, and that obviously rings alarm bells. And then at that point, is it, you got to think, is it, um, is it worth it to be doing it in the open? Because if you end up getting caught and then something happens to you, then everything comes, comes crashing down and you know, it's the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have lost, have lost people too. I mean, we're not talking like in, in America, typically when we say, Oh yeah, I, I lost my, um, my, my, my family member X, Y, and Z. It's, you know, a lot of times there's a, our first jump to conclusion on that is like sickness and in and health issues and things like that. And in those areas, when you refer to, you know, where I've lost so-and-so it's, it's a different type of ending to that person's life. That's quite more relatable to the medieval times. It sure is. Um, 
you know, I'm just thinking of some recent deaths. Um, and it was, it was some of the workers that were out on the field and they were traveling and they got a call to go home. And one man came home and found out that his parents and his wife had been poisoned because they found out they were believers. Um, sometimes it's, it's brutal. They torture them. They capture them. They torture them, trying to get them to reveal more of the network of, of who they're working with. Um, but we've, you know, try not to be too graphic, but we've had leaders with their throats slashed that have been shot in the head and killed. Um, it's, it's just horrific. It's, it's a punch in the gut when that happens. It's, it's so hard to take that. And for our leaders who, you know, work with these men and women day in and day out, it, it kind of makes them draw back. And every time they do that, I think, okay, are, are we doing something we shouldn't be doing? You know, are we sending these people in harm's way? But I have to tell you, that usually we are the ones trying to pull them back when they say we're going to this new area we're going into this region we really got to share the gospel and sometimes we'll say hey that's that's really dangerous there maybe you shouldn't go there maybe you should think about that and they and they say you know what the lord's telling me to go and i'm not going to disobey and i think that not that it makes it easier but it makes you understand that they're doing what the lord's called them to do they're not being sent by big life. That's not how we operate. We just empower them. We help them. It's it's their ministry that we come alongside them as they do that. But after that shrinking back time where, you know, they have to grieve, uh, I think that's part of it. Yeah. But then it, it's like they get this resolve, even a greater resolve that, again, I'm not letting that death be in vain. So who will rise up and who will continue this work? And, and, you know, persecution makes the gospel spread. Is and, and, and what's an amazing thing that they said to us years ago, and I will never forget this as long as I live, the persecution was really great uh, for several months, about three years ago. I mean, we had people that were being chased. We had people that were being threatened. They get calls on their phone saying, we know who you are. We're coming to kill you and your family and your kids. And we started to pray with them. And as we were praying, they said, wait a minute, do not pray for persecution to stop because we always see greater opportunities to share during persecution, but pray that we get through the persecution. And I never forget that because when, when I feel persecuted, I'm like, Lord, please take it this stop way. It. Yeah, it yeah, stop. Yeah. I don't want it. And they're like, no, do not pray that way. I mean, what kind of faith is that? That that puts me to shame. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, a great, a phenomenal perspective on it because it's, you know, it's almost like, allow me to handle it, you know, let me take it on and push through the the suffering, you know, rather than eliminate the suffering in total, just allow me to handle it, which I think is really a, a very high level way of, of thinking. Logistically, like the toughest part for you guys too, has got to be like communication, right? I mean, do you, do, is there like a, a big um, English speaking, um, uh people out there or is it because i think the languages are in um afghanistan like our our pasho and and dari right it's um not, uh, yeah 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 um how um how are you guys able to to communicate with them well fortunately we have one person who handles all of the reports and communication and then he translates it for us otherwise oh, we, we'd be dead in the water without that but 
that's how we communicate back and forth to them. Again, the lines of communication are usually the the biggest problem. Um, some won't talk on phones. I mean, you and I are on a Zoom call right now. They would not do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? So they found specific ways on how to communicate, um, even with certain apps where as soon as you send a message, it's deleted off your phone. Because mm. uh, they, you know, they've been on public transportation over there and Taliban stops and they search everybody's phone. So you can't have that information lingering in your phone. But that's that's been a godsend that we we get this information. And and we do have uh, some nationals that get to go in the country now and then and okay. get even better reports and come in and out. And that's that's really been helpful. Yeah, because they're able to kind of maybe uh, provide some on ground, some some support on ground that give, gives a little refresher to people of like, you know, we, we do have people coming out. It's not just uh, it's not just over the phone. <laughs> Absolutely. And what are some other countries you guys uh, work in? Uh, in that region? I'm um, in any country, really. I know you said India before. Yeah, we actually we're actually working in about 161 countries around the world. Uh, as I told you, it started in 1999, 2000 in Iran. Um, in Central Asia, we, you know, we work in Pakistan. We work in a little bit in Iran, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, those kind of countries. In India, you know, around those countries, Bhutan, uh, Nepal, um, Myanmar. Myanmar is still not. Yeah, Myanmar. yeah. Terrible things happen in Myanmar, but. Yeah, the you know the reason we mostly started as you alluded to earlier, you know, Iran, Afghanistan, how how many ministries are working over there? But the North Africa, Middle East, South and Central Asia region they call the ten forty window, and that's between the tenth and the fortieth parallel. But it's really two out of three people on the planet live in the ten forty window, so it's it's a very heavy populated area that really needs the gospel. Yeah, I mean, you got a New Delhi over there in India, which is the, I mean, India is the, uh, has the highest population. I think they just passed China as the number one populated country, mainly because of New Delhi, um, just this past year. Yeah, I know that China and, and India kind of argue back and forth who has more. And Yeah, they do. And honestly, I uh, <laughs> I don't know who's counting those, honestly, because I could say they just passed them or whatever. But like, do I know for sure if it's China or India with that many people who's counting that many? I have no idea. But um, yeah. that I don't think they do either. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You got so many coming in. Um, yeah. But that is uh, that is some really, really uh, great work that you guys do, honestly, because I feel like it's it's needed, especially in that those areas we were just talking about. Those are areas that I think people need, you know, hope and, and, and that in them, you know, like, cause they're, they're dealing with such hardships that if you don't have that, I don't really know how you'd be able to push through some of those times. I mean, like think of even, um, uh, the, the family of Nazrat, you know, I mean, he, he goes to America and, his family's got to be like, okay, I'm, I never have to worry about his safety. I just have to worry about mine. You know, he's living in Washington, DC, which out of any area in that whole country, people probably know Washington, DC and probably New York city. They probably know. And then all of a sudden they get a call that he, you know, he's, he's no longer with them. Um, that, that would be just awful to, to hear it's back in Afghanistan when you're struggling with what you are struggling with. I mean, w without it, I mean, what else do you, what else do you have to fall back on really? 
Yeah. And it's heartbreaking that, you know, you would escape all that danger um, and, and come to a free country and then have this tragedy happen to you and your family. Um, my heart breaks for him. You know, I'm sure they, I'm sure he had great hope. I'm sure he probably felt great relief when he got here. And then to have your life snuffed out by some senseless act like that is just, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Working as a Lyft driver too. Cause if there was one, um, one, I would say Lyft drivers and Uber drivers out of the top five jobs I could think of, if you say, what are the top five, like grind type of jobs? It would probably be like restaurant server, Lyft driver, Uber driver, you know, where you could just work as many hours as you possibly can, can fill in. Cause he was doing, I think like up to like 20 hours a day working because he's also sending money back to Afghanistan where he, he said he was sending like $150 and that would feed them for over a month, his whole family over there. You know, because sure. the the economy's uh completely uh completely wrecked and, and shocked over there. But like everything else with I mean, any issue of morality based and religious, everything is kind of in a Yeah. Um the Taliban's gotten more organized, obviously, in the last two years. Um, you know, earlier when we were talking about moving those fifty-three thousand, that wasn't an easy thing to do, but it was easier because there was disorganized. Uh, Taliban. But since they've gotten organized, you know, it's it's the work is harder. Uh, movement is harder. And like I said, I th as of seven, eight months ago, we thought we were done with that. But our leaders inside the country have found another group that is being daily threatened uh, by the Taliban, that they're going to kill them because they're believers. Um, so we have started up again, and we're trying to move 8,500 people out. Um, and that's that's not going to be easy. Uh, it's not something in our budget. The rig the first one wasn't in our budget. Yeah. The Lord provided. We we spent about $5 million. It looks like we're going to spend four and a half to $5 million uh, on this operation as well. But again, we go, okay, it's the right thing to do. And uh, we're not going to shy away from the danger. Yeah, no, it's, that's good to, good to know you guys are, have your, your roots in the ground over there then. Yeah, um, definitely. They're they're. I mean, the leaders are still there. They're not they're not going anywhere. And they are, you know, imperative to the operation. None of this could happen without them on the ground. If if this was a, a U.S. based or, you know, big life trying to do it from the United States, it, it would be a total failure. But when you have the right people on the ground and, and remembering where they came from uh, and how qualified they are to do that, how passionate they are to do that, uh, you'll see great results. Are there safer provinces in Afghanistan for like uh, for religious tolerance or is it all just one blanket slate? Because I got to imagine the the cities have got to be really, really, really tough to practice anything else. But are there more like are there rural safer areas to do to practice religious freedom at all? Um, or is it or is the fear really? Well, if it starts one place openly people are it, it's going to talk 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 it's going to spread around and then everyone knows eventually um there's going to be a major pushback yeah i honestly i don't know that i'm qualified to answer that but i i will tell you that uh, when u.s forces were there and i didn't even know this till recently uh my leaders explained to me they said you know u.s forces were there the taliban obviously was in hiding in certain areas but they said there were like warlords and different factions of Afghanistan that were controlled territory by by certain individuals. And they said we could not go into certain areas because, mm -hmm. you know, because of how it was controlled. They said, but since the fall, 
basically all of Afghanistan is open. They said we can almost travel anywhere. Now it's not without you know questions and looking at your paperwork and everything else. They said, but we haven't found that there are off-limit areas to us anymore. So again, that has led oh. to opportunity as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess I could see that because they they just feel like all right, all the Western forces are are out. So it's really just us or maybe somebody who doesn't have as much power as us, you know, because they probably thought with us still there, you know, it could be somebody trying to infiltrate and then take away what we have, like our little nooks throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And um, a fun fact for you, actually, um, uh, Colonel Mark Bruselli, actually, during the Afghanistan um, withdrawal, he was the colonel leading the medical response even especially during the day of the bombing at the airport where 13 Americans died, 60 Afghans died and hundreds were injured. Colonel Mark Ruzzelli, actually, he was on episode six of the podcast, actually small world. Hmm. Yeah. He, he's a Miami um, works down here in Miami at the army trauma training center. And he actually came on the podcast. Um, he was on the, the sixth episode. So I'm just thinking about this now. I'm like this, the, it's such a uh, small world. We, we probably know some of the same people. I do not know the colonel personally. Um, Scott Mann, who's frequently on uh, different uh, news stations uh, talking about what's going on in Afghanistan. We worked with him closely and some of the people he's connected to. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's fantastic to work with these guys who, you know, they were on the ground there. So they know the situation. And, you know, for them to. uh you know, get involved with an operation after they're most of them are out of the military at this point, but yeah. they still made a way they had connections. And they're like, you know, we cannot leave these people that helped us there. We cannot leave them just to the hands of the Taliban. So they've been very instrumental in getting a lot of people out. And your video, um, actually, you guys have online gave a really, really great point of view of what it's like being a refugee in that type of setting where it's like, I'm kind of in hiding, but I'm hiding in plain sight. But at the same time, I am hiding in my house most of the day uh, because it's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be wanted or if um, what's going to happen. And your video gave such a great point of view because the feeling of getting a phone call from somebody saying like, you need to hide, you need to get out of here now. And then just grabbing anything that's important to you and then just running out of your house in like probably 30 to 40 seconds of what that phone call would be like what was insane and it really gave a great point of view from inside of like a refugee's mind yeah you, you've got to think that their their lives are in total upheaval right you have no security you have no safety things can change at a moment's notice so you know i'm sure they're pre-planning when i get that call what do i have to grab besides my you know my family and my kids i we've got to get out of here um, but I, I just can't fathom that, Daniel, the, the way that they just have to run out into the open, run out and, and leave everything that they've ever known behind. And like I said, going to countries and not knowing people and trying, like you said, trying to learn the language, trying to get work, trying to feed your family. It's an incredibly heartbreaking situation. Yeah. And like we were talking about before, it is really just the beginning. Um, yeah. So I, um, that is, uh. It's I can't thank you enough, Jeff, for um coming on and 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 chatting about your work. And I for for people that are interested in and in watching the video I was just talking about or learning more about big life and the work that you guys do or wanna 
join and be a part of the work that you guys do. Where can people find you the the best? Is it big dot life or where would you refer people to? That's it. Uh, I mean, you can put the three W's if you want, www.big.life, but most people just type in big.life and that's it. There's no .com or .net or anything like that. Um, there's a whole page on there about our work in Afghanistan. Um, so people can read about that. They can watch the video that you're referring to. And uh, if they want to get involved, praying for the people there, even even giving funds to help get more people out. Right now, it's it's costing about $500 per person to get them out. Um, that's for transportation and paperwork and and then getting them registered with uh, you know, the UNHCR and other NGOs once they get out to help them. So, yeah, we'd appreciate any help anyone wants to give. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, for sure. That's uh thank you guys for for staying on this and being like the the underground railroad out there for for people, you know, religious wise um for people in Afghanistan and in the other countries that you guys work out of because it really is amazing stuff and it really provides just people hope with and and I feel like a purpose, right? I mean, it's like a purpose for living. You know, I mean, it's not just hope, it's it is them living. It's their way of life. So um, kudos to you guys on it. And I'd love to touch base with you guys again down the road and, and, you know, see how things are and, and get some more, um, some more light into some of this work you guys do. Yeah. I'd love, love to give you some updates on this 8,500. That's going to take probably a longer time than it took even to move the 53,000, uh, because like I said, they're organized, but, um, you know, we're, we're honestly, we're a bunch of nobodies and the Lord has just made a way. And he's just doing incredible work because we're just willing to do it. And we don't take any of the credit. It's it's all glory to God. I would not uh, classify you guys as the nobody. That's that, that's that's for sure. The, my podcast is filled with the greatest people in the world doing the greatest work across the world. You guys are phenomenal, Jeff. And I um I really want you guys to know that because, uh, you know, if you guys, I, I, almost, I ask basically everybody, guess that comes on i mean if you guys aren't doing the work that you're doing i mean what what happens to the people that you're trying to help it's it's it tends to be not you know not a lot of good things and that's the reason i mean there's there's a lot of uh stuff going on in the world because we just need more people more organizations like these to to um not only like be out there and doing it but to um to encourage other people to to do and do it openly so thanks um Thank you for that, Jeff. I can uh, hopefully leave you leave you with that. Yeah, thank you for those kind words. That's very nice. Yeah, and uh, I will I will see you down the road, Jeff. Very good. Thanks, Dane.